Welcome to another installment of Show to View with Mike G, the show of life, the show of Mezcal, the show of Mexico, the show of corn. The shutdown's been difficult for all of us, but maybe you've picked up a trade. Personally, for me, I've gone all in on corn. That's right, and why this episode is so important to me as I sit down with the founder of Masienda, Jorge Gaviria. We sit down and we talk about NYU, we talk about the terrible things that have happened in this country this week. It was really a timely chat, and I always thought about canceling, as I mentioned in the conversation. But you know what? I love what Jorge is doing. I love Masienda. He's turned me into a fan, and he's had such a cool life so far, and he's just starting. You know, Masienda is at the helm of corn culture in America, but globally, it's going to happen too. So without further ado, I hope you guys enjoy this great chat with Jorge Gaviria. In our lives, there's no bigger moment to talk about media, culture, and communication than today. And having that background at NYU for BA, how does today make you feel? Because these are things you've studied for years. Yeah. Yeah. And are we talking about the events uh, of yesterday, particularly, or, you yeah, know, particularly. The, you can, we can talk about porn. social discord, injustice, yeah. but just specifically about the insurrection yesterday. Yeah. It's, um, you know, I think, unfortunately, it's a long time, you know, coming. It's been in development for, for as long as, you know, we've been using social media and the, the danger of echo chambers. I mean, nothing that anybody at this point doesn't know. Um, I was just, I was kind of just watching Fox news. I kind of always flip between kind of, um, liberal and conservative media just to kind of understand where, like, where, where the conversation lies at any given time. And it's amazing. I mean, like, you know, there's like a backlash happening now against Trump being taken off of Twitter, um, or suspended from Twitter. And then, you know, there's talk about a conservative Twitter coming up and like, God, that's brilliant. Like, of course, that's the natural response to that. Um, of course, it terrifies me at the same time, but mm-hmm. I just think it's amazing um, how rapid things are changing and how rapid the infrastructure is changing to support conversations, um, large, small, good, and bad. And obviously, as a result of yesterday, um, yeah, I mean, it feels, it's very heavy. I, I don't know what to say. It's uh, yeah. The more I think about it and digest it, the more just kind of painful it is that so many people feel angst, like one way or another, you know? Yeah, the- I have been crying a lot lately, but, but like spontaneously, it's, yeah. it's almost ridiculous. <laughs> but there's something about what I feel towards other people, true empathy, which I think lacks in a lot of people. But for you, having such an investment in other cultures, whether I believe Italy to some degree in Mexico and stuff, does this, do you feel this too? Does this, because you, we, we probably are doing pretty good. I saw that the pic, you guys were shipping a whole lot of stuff from Hacienda, yeah. so maybe professionally we're doing good, but emotionally there's this massive grayness. Do you feel that too? Yeah, you know, I think I did. I felt it 
certainly at the beginning of COVID and definitely as, as um, the conversations around you know, racial inequality uh, have continued to swell, particularly in the summer, I, I, I sort of, my breaking point was around then. Um, just, yeah, lots of spontaneous tears and kind of cathartic, like just crying. But I think also, um, it's been a large year of transition for me, but I'm getting, getting off topic here, but like just spiritually, I think I've embraced a lot more, um, um, practices or practice in general to help me stay sort of, um, attuned to kind of like, what, what are we talking about here? What are we talking about in the greater scope of humanity? what's happening, you know, these are just like, these are social cultural contractions that are happening that, you know, they happen. And, um, I think the biggest mantra I've had of 2020 and, and now into 2021 is just like resistance is suffering, you know, resistance of like what's happening and kind of denial of what's happening is, is going to lead to more suffering personally. So just working through those motions, working through it as opposed to around it has been the most helpful thing. And, um, yeah, coming out on the other side with empathy for everybody, you know, including folks who I disagree with, um, you know, obviously love, love the people, not the behavior. And I think that's, uh, that's been something to think about a lot. But in the, in that case, for me, health and eating right now, I will be the first to admit, I drink a good bit of things, but I eat well, and I work <laughs> out, you know, but for you, what is the ground? Because it sounds like cognitively you have entered another chapter of acceptance or processing or analysis, but what keeps you grounded when everything is so noisy? You know, man, I think um, there's some personal stuff there. I think like, it, you know, I grew up in a loving household, but also like a really confused one. You know, my parents, you know, were dealing with a lot from between drug addiction and, um, you know, addictions of all kinds, frankly. Um, and, um, you know, a pretty tumultuous relationship, divorce. And so I kind of think like I grew up in a lot of a sort of upheaval, it felt like, and um, I've been able to manage it internally. Maybe it's like a stoicist's approach to it. But I think, um, you know, I, I think, I think uh, just keeping perspective each day is all we can do. You know, it's, it's a daily practice. Um, and I still try to do that and refine that the skill as much as I can, as much as I can, even though I feel like there's some sort of piece of me that's like, somewhat used to, you know, a little bit of conflict and managing through conflict. I, I think that's really interesting. You know, it's, I played live music for, for a long time. Mm. And I'm jealous. I, well, yeah, I mean, I never worked in a kitchen though. I've, that's still on my <laughs> list. I'm still meant to do that. But what you don't notice, even though I wore earplugs for most, most of those days, if you really pay attention, I can hear the ring in my left ear. Mm. And it's only when you focus on what you're really feeling that one, you get used to that abrasive noise to your point, maybe this undercurrent of instability, not because of you, but because of these external factors, but you just kind of, then you realize what you're really dealing with the deck. Yeah. And so, all right, so let's talk a little bit about Miami. You were born in Miami or born in Florida. That's right. Yeah. I was born in Miami, Florida. Um, yeah, but back back or late eighties, late eighties, baby. Late eighties. I'm nineteen eighty. I think you you you're like thirty two, thirty three. Yeah, in nineteen eighty seven, July twenty first, something like that. I can't remember. Well, man, gosh, yeah. the internet's scary. Well, I just have a weird. <laughs> I can just remember dates and stuff like that. Yeah. So okay, well, you know, if you look at your resume beyond this latest chapter of entrepreneurialism, which we'll, I definitely want to talk about, there it's steeped with appreciation for other cultures. 
and of course, food. So mm-hmm. that love of food, does that come from, is what you who claim is like a tumultuous household, did it come from that or was that somewhere else? Yeah, I mean, man, I, I, feel, I feel the intimacy here, man, so I'm going to go into it. Um, yeah. yeah, I think in my, in my case, you know, it actually like, it's something I discovered recently, you know, like I, um, food was a big part of my, my like early infancy, you know, like my mom wasn't producing enough naturally to feed me. And she didn't even know that for weeks. Um, so I was like chronically hungry. Uh, it's like a you know, sob story. It's like not a big deal. Like I'm yeah. fine. You know, like, I think like there was this natural like desire to know where my next meal is coming from like <laughs> at a very, very early age. And so, um, you know, I, at the end of the day that sort of evolved into, you know, like, you know, you're going back and forth between parents' houses and you're, you know, my dad was definitely doing the bachelor thing. And like, I wasn't quite sure what we were going to eat. It wasn't as comfortable, you know, going to my mom's house where it was much more, you know, it was much more of a homey experience, like a maternal, you know, instinct that she had. Um, I kind of just like really saw food as a, as a vessel of like comfort and pleasure. And one that I think like my, you know, my identity really became linked with, um, you know, I would go, like, you know, in any transition, like that was just something that was always there. And I felt like I wanted to, to develop a sort of a more deep, intimate understanding of how to, how to survive and like, not just survive, but like, you know, the major vessel, or I should say the major lever in my life for pleasure at that time was always food. So it's like, I, I kind of felt like I had this like moral obligation or this like strong instinct to want to, um, learn how to fend for myself and not just fend for myself, but like, thrive, enjoy, like create something that I, I could be responsible for my own pleasure in a way. Wow. Uh, yeah, that, I don't want to leave that to chance. That, don't, don't leave yeah. the next meal to chance. Yeah. Going back to, to your, your mother and father, did they have any background in, in food or being entrepreneurs? No, I mean, well, you know, in their own ways, I mean, my mom didn't go to college. Um, and you know, she, she kind of, she sort of, tumbled along. Um, I doubt my mom's ever going to hear this. I feel pretty okay talking about her. Um, you know, she, she sort of just like tumbled forward, um, got married really young, eloped at 18, divorced when she was like 20. Um, so she had a bit of a chaotic, um, upbringing. Food was just sort of something I think she was good at, but she never really fully honed. Um, she was good at it relative to my dad. So I just sort of gravitated toward that. My dad actually my dad is or was an attorney and uh, kind of always expected me to go to law school. And then finally, when I like told him one day after reading Danny Meyer's book, and I kind of had this like precedent for not going to law school. And you know, Danny Meyer talks about like you know, he took the LSATs, and his aunt and uncle were like, "Why the hell are you doing this? You know, we should be doing what you love." And he's like, "I have no idea what that is." And they're like, it's food, man. Like, just just pursue your passion of food. I showed my dad that, and I was like, "I'm going to do this too. Here's my whole plan." Um, and he was like, "Well, you know, your grandfather, my dad, uh, was an entrepreneur and had all of these restaurants." that he started, um, in Cuba and before that in Spain. And I was like, wait, what, you know, like why you're telling me this now? Like <laughs> it's a little late, man. Um, so, you know, apparently there's that runs through the, the family in some way, but, um, yeah, it was, it was sort of later in life that I discovered that. It's weird to, I like to think I come from this spontaneous thing that happened in the universe and I am who I am. Mm-hmm. But then if mm-hmm. I go and I look back and I'm, I mean, I have a distillery. And then if you think about that, that's directly linked to the hospitality industry because they're right. my customer. And right. like, well, where did I get that from? Well, my mom was a nurse. Okay, well, that makes sense. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I find out my, you know, it's to share as well. I've, I've never met my father mm-hmm. and he, and I, I love being in front of camera and, and acting and stuff like that, even though I've done other things. That's what he was. He was like a news anchor. So I'm like, God damn it. I, wow. thought, I, I, I thought I built wow. these skills myself, you know, but we can polish them and to use your word, we can hone them. Yeah. Gosh, so, nature's, nature's so strong, man. I, I kind of take that for granted too, but it is, it is just as much a force as nurture. You, you, and when we stop recording, I have something to share about that because I, I completely agree. And it's unscientific, but it's family and you can see it. Yeah. So many things to do. You know, you could have just went to New York and not gone to school, but for you, was that academic pursuit maybe more of a reason to go to New York? Um, you know, man, I I think honestly, when I was, um, in high school, I, you know, I just didn't know what I was doing. I think there was a lot of, you know, I think related to that, like tumultuous back and forth. Um, I was sort of trying to just kind of become whole on a very basic fundamental level. And it's been taking me a lot of time to do that. Um, I wasn't as really, you know, I was lucky because my best friend that I grew up with across the street, um, in, in Miami in high school, um, you know, he was incredibly well-to-do and like he had a nuclear family who was really pushing him to, you know, keep his head down in school. And so like, I kind of, I kind of just got lucky with that sort of peer group. Um, and mm-hmm. by, I mean like individual, <laughs> really, <laughs> that I had an opportunity to kind of just follow and make sure I was keeping some kind of course, uh, as, as, as time went by. Um, no, I, I actually, I stayed, gosh, I had a girlfriend in high school that, you know, evolved into a college girlfriend, same person. And like, I kind of just like, my priority was staying close. She was a year younger than me. So I stayed close to the nest in Florida. I went to university of Florida for a year and I was miserable. Um, and then, uh, you know, I'd always wanted to get out of state and, you know, my dad was like, it, all that really matters is law schools, just like focus on, you know, saving some money and like, you'll get a law school and you'll kind of do it, do it right then. And I was like, I actually don't want to do that. Like I really need to be, um, in a place that's like just on my own independent thought and challenged. And, and New York was like, a you know, I think the only option for me, I, for some reason, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't imagine anywhere else, place, any place else to be. So academics were actually secondary to that. Um, <laughs> it was more just like exposure. I needed to, God, I needed to get out of the nest, you know? Did you, you know, that was the thing I was going to ask you is we traveled domestically quite a bit as, as, as I was a kid. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm not really, and I moved every four years, moved all over the place, but mm-hmm. was that a part of your upbringing or was it because you didn't have a chance to explore all the things, even in, in America, different places that you're like, New York, that'll be the, the richest experience culturally I can have. I mean, so, so in other words, did you guys travel at all when you were younger? Yeah. In fact, like, you know, my dad was really into like RV culture. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, um, you know, it was just like, he got a van, um, and you know, I, I didn't know what was happening on a summer or a Christmas break. And like, he'd pick me up outside of my mom's house, um, you know, on Christmas and like, we'd end up in, you know, Wyoming, oh, wow. like, you know, a week later. And I was like, wait, I, you know, without any knowing of like what was going to happen, it sort of just occurred that way. Sorry, my dog's having some, some water in the background. Cool. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I mean, like I, there was a lot of domestic travel and I feel pretty lucky. I mean, my dad's a very adventurous person and, you know, he exposed me to parts of South America. You know, one of our, my favorite earliest trips is we went to Venezuela and a friend of his is, um, you know, like he sort of grew up in a native community in Venezuela, very, very removed from kind of any city like very much in the Amazon. And it was just like a very profound experience to sort of see and integrate into that lifestyle. 
um, for even a time, you know, so moments like that for sure helped shape it. I mean, Cuba, we went to Cuba and understanding just how complex that culture was and has become, um, you know, my parents' generation alone. It was, it was wild. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I, that's, I wish I had a little more of that when I was a kid, but single mom and stuff is not the yeah. time nor the financial, yeah. you know, you, you totally understand that. For sure. So, yeah. No, my mom was not, was not leading those trips. Yeah. It's, well, it's a, a low, you know, dad lawyer. That's probably yeah. a little bit yeah, of money there. It helps. Yeah. It helps. It definitely helps. So the, this journey then kind of treks. So one thing I thought was, is, was funny. And this was, this was, I think probably 2000, I can't, 2011, 12, maybe, but there's mm-hmm. a video of you at NYU. Oh my God. Yeah. Have you seen this thing? Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. I've seen it. Can't get yeah, out of and, and I, I was, because you, I always wonder where these the people that I interview, where they come from, because that's what defines us. I mean, and the, the little truck stops across the journey, I guess you could say. But it, it seems like you're a super cultural, arty guy. Is that fair oh, to say? Thank you. I think, I think my, the more attuned to myself I get, the more I realize that like my, my MO is, is understanding and analyzing and, you know, affecting culture. So I didn't know that as a kid. Um, but I think there were definitely proclivities as early as, you know, like a, a young, young boy. Um, yeah, I, I appreciate you saying that. Um, I, I'm sure some of it was a lot of it being in college, especially it's an affectation, you know, you're just trying to fit in and like sound great to your professor who you're totally in love with and like all that stuff. But, uh, you know, I think, I think, um, it's hard to not, it's hard to not, you know, living in New York, it's just, it's such a, it's such a melting pot of, of cultures truly. I mean, like Miami, I always thought was, you know, cause it's considered to be like, it's just like this Latin, you know, experience of like, people say it's like even a third world country, you know, yeah. famously, infamously. Um, and, uh, you know, you get to New York and like, no, this is really, this is really something. This is a, like a Petri dish of humanity here. So, um, I was just fascinated by it. And I think like, that's where certainly I started to really kind of pay attention to like what I cared about and, yeah. and culture is a, a big part of that. To, to go kind of down that art path just for a second, because it, it's New York's obviously steeped in art, whether it's art or film, are those things that inspire you now, whether it's film or whether it's music or art, do those things kind of fill your sails, so to speak? Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my wife, kids around with me, I mean, she's, she's like, I'm a human, you know, walking Wikipedia. It's like, I, you know, if I, if I see a film or start going down the rabbit holes, especially musicians, like music's probably my first love that I never got a chance, haven't had a chance yet to really fully uh, develop. Um, you know, I'll spend days, days and days weeks of just like understanding everything I can about that artist, where they come from, um, you know, what was their big break? Like, you know, how did their compositions change over time? Um, and yeah, I just like love that. I think that's like, for me, one of my, my, um, you know, my favorite ways to self-educate is just kind of learning through these people's stories and like seeing how they're able to channel creativity and moments of adversity. And when it's certainly not, uh, it's not all glamour, you know, I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm addicted to those stories. Dude, that's how I, I taxonomize or taxonify. Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll watch a movie. This happens a lot now. 
that I'll go back and listen to a record that I love the sound of it. And I'm like, okay, this is a great record. And I revisit and revisit. I'm like, oh, I really like this other one too. Different bands, different parts of the country, same producer. Mm-hmm. You know, like there's this artery through the aesthetic that I appreciate. And one of the things, you know, talking about stories, and I'm by no means a Goya expert, but when mm-hmm. he started to lose his senses, mm-hmm. uh, the painting became so much more morbid and del- delusional almost. Yeah. You know? these, wow. So, so many ama- amazing stories like that. So I, I really feel like we share that in common, but you know, let's talk about corn because there's such a striking parallel between corn and agave. And mm-hmm. this story, which sounds like you were at the right place at the right time, translating Spanish or was it Italian? It was Spanish. Yeah. And I think, I think there was a, there was one Brazilian chef. So like I was trying to, you know, get some Portuguese across when he couldn't find the right word. And yeah, yeah, it, was, yeah. it was a hodgepodge of things going on. And this, but this becomes an aha moment for you. Yeah. Yeah. So I, um, I had started working at Blue Hill at Stone Barns. I kind of, my, my foray into cooking started in education. I started kind of working with, with middle school students at an at-risk middle school in, in Brooklyn and found myself incorporating more kind of a culinary curriculum. Um, you know, it's one of the easiest ways to bake in math, literally you're, you're mm-hmm. sort of working with ratios and things like that. And I started paying attention to that. So I decided not to go to law school, uh, went to Italy for a year, um, worked in a farm and, and butchering, uh, sort of program there, um, in the most sort of like pristine traditional state and fell in love with it and kind of, you know, my journey ended up leading me to this moment of like, all right, I know I want to work, in food, I don't think that that's going to be in a restaurant because, you know, um, to me, like I really wanted to, I wanted to be a part of that community, but like add something to it, mm-hmm. um, in a way that was sort of supplementing it and not trying to, you know, compete in any way. Um, and, uh, you know, the conversation at Blue Hill at that time, especially was around this idea of like, the, you know, it's sort of a playbook now, but like at the time it was very, revelatory in the sense that you know, we've, we've grown up this generation depending on certain ingredients and staples that we have no connection with at all, you know, and obviously like the farm table movement, the organic movement, you know, shape and East, like lots of restaurants have been informing this over the decades, but like, you know, this was a really critical moment in the conversation where people were starting to really understand, like, you know, it's not just like farm to table. We're talking about like holistic ways of, working with farms, you know, and supporting the whole range of agriculture that makes corn or whatever possible, Mm -hmm. um, you know, based on healthy soil and just like unpacking this and taking a real regenerative, sustainable approach to it. It was just like, it was a big, big moment. And I was like, man, that's, that's what I want to do. Like, I want to, I'd had that experience that sort of same spark in Italy where I was just like, my gosh, this is what free range means. So, you yeah. know, when you're like, what kind of protein was it, by the way, in Italy? I was curious. Pigs. Yeah, they were, they were, uh, they were pigs. Um, primarily that we worked with a couple different, uh, you know, breeds of animals, but yeah, I was just like, this is what free range is, man. When you're just like stacking rocks below a forest, you know, to create a gate, you know, some type of structure to prevent, you know, like that hundred acres from being totally, you know, compromised, um, that these animals are grazing on. So yeah, I, I think that same, that same moment happened when I was at Blue Hill and I just thought this, this is the future. Uh, you know, everybody's going to be thinking about this in this way. It's, it's behind the scenes enough. It's, um, it's intellectually satisfying to me. Like I want to figure out a way to make a staple, you know, uh, come to light in a, in a sort of a new way for this new generation, a sort of way of thought. Um, 
that's a rambling way of saying like, I basically, <laughs> I was ready to not work in a restaurant anymore, start a business. And I wanted to do it around food and supply chains. Which, and, which You know, it's really fascinating too, is when you start talking about uh, almost uh, crawling, like an artist, right? You crawl the, the, their work, you crawl the events in their life. It makes so much sense that what is you as an intersection point with like education in food, then mm-hmm. turns into culture and food, then turns into who makes the thing and that, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like totally end to end. And it's, it's really fascinating because I think, again, that follows maybe the mental model that you have for stuff. Yeah. It's yeah, great. Wow. You, you, you did that much more eloquently than I could. <laughs> the first time, just, you know, just self-professed the first time I've ever made any connection between one thing and, and another. But I want to tell you, know, this is the thing too that I found fascinating is that I'm getting into, because of you, and, and uh, I don't know if you know Dr. Ivan Saldana. He works for Montalobos, Mezcal, Abasolo Whiskey. Really men, wonderful mentor and friend. But, Not personally, but definitely. Um, you guys, oh, do you think we, we're all going to go out to Hilotepec at that distillery for Abasolo? Yeah. We have to. But Oh, man. Yeah, one of the things that he <laughs> introduced me to was nixtamalization. Mm-hmm. You know, and I didn't really know how to do it, but I heard this term, and I loved the videos you did and it helped me understand how to do this thing but then once i went a little bit deeper into corn it's a racket in mexico yeah. i didn't realize like the way that maseca worked and, and the, that they wouldn't let farmers have certain kinds of corn and how was it easy working with that organization i believe it was in oaxaca to identify farmers or is it still pretty like mezcal or like tequila like super regulated it's, it's a, it's a hodgepodge, man. I mean, I think ultimately, you know, there has been work on the ground for a couple of decades to document these kind of this, like this variety of, of corn and this, this really like this genetic treasure trove of, of corn that exists in Mexico. Um, you know, it's like the entire seed industry that we know of today, you know, this commercial du- DuPont, Pioneer, Monsanto, Syngenta, I mean, all those lines point back to Mexico and kind of where these materials were, you know, either originate or were, were appropriated from. Um, so there's been a large industry that's been feeding this for a while. And so with that comes like a lot of documentation and, um, you know, there, there's a whole taxonomy that exists because it's, you know, there's a commercial interest behind it. So that's been happening. And unfortunately, you know, that's obviously caused a bit of a, a rift in that world where it's like, there are the people who are studying this for the, f- the pure joy of like, you know, documenting history and culture. And um, there's a bit of sort of like, uh, you, know, um, you know, anthropology that goes into that. Mm-hmm. And then there's this whole other world that's like, okay, well, in order to fund that research, we need people who, like these big companies to have an interest in doing so. And like, ultimately all of the work that's happening on this sort of pure passion-based um, basis ends up becoming something sort of a part of a, a movement that is anathema to like what those very researchers are wanting. Yeah. So um, it's been around for a while. Um, lots of, you know, organizations on the ground, um, CIMIT being one of them, um, you know, uh, then, you know, the, the Mexican government has its own versions of like, you know, what we know of as, as a USDA down there. Right. Um, so, there are a lot of selfless researchers doing this work. And then the interesting thing to me is like, you know, we only know about, you know, when we say corn, first of all, most people think of like f- sweet corn, like yeah. you eat on the cob. There's a, there's a big disconnect between that and like, you know, the field corn that we actually use, you know, it's what's primarily grown across the world. 
And then an even bigger disconnect that like, this has as much nuance as like, you know, any, any little precious, like heirloom tomato that we've got a cute name for or bean, right? Yeah. Like, you know, beans are becoming super popular. And it's like corn has been like this for, for a minute, but like no one was translating this to a commercial, you know, conversation, like or narrative that like people could actually access it. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, I think that's, that was sort of what was really compelling to me is like, shit, this is just as gourmet as any one of these things that we really take, you know, you know, seriously and like pay a premium for, like, why shouldn't this be valued in the same way? It, it, totally. And I mean, that's one of the things to, to, to go back to mezcal is that where it is, what types of agave are used. It, because The only reason I cite mezcal is because it's not only the most interesting spirit in the world, sorry, the French, I mean, I love cognac and stuff, but it, it is, and mezcal hands <laughs> yeah. down is. But it's special. It, it's super special. And I'm like surrounded by four sample bottles from Sonora, right? Mm. They, this is the other piece is it's about where it comes from. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I read in one of the interviews you did is that what folks might like in Oaxaca in terms of flavor for corn or mm-hmm. to equate it to Santiago Matatlan, which is a specific, specific style of mezcal, is different mm-hmm. than what they would like in Estado de Mexico, which mm-hmm. tell me how important is corn to Mexico if that distinction can be made? Oh my gosh. I mean, it's, uh, it's the, the, the origin story of humanity is like, you know, inextricably linked to the origin story of corn, you know, like man came from corn, corn came from man, you know, it's, uh, there's so much mythology and, and, uh, just like, uh, reverence that they're deities, you know, that are dedicated to corn. Like it's, it's bigger than food. It's bigger than, it certainly would never be thought of as like an industrial, you know, byproduct of anything. It's, um, it's corn is life, you know, it's, it's religion. What I mean, it, you know, it, the average Mexican eats, I think about 200 kilos. I've read different accounts, but like one of the most recent one I've read is about 200 kilos per capita a year. I mean, that's just insane. That's you know, insane. Like, you know, knowing how specific you are with the types of, even though I know it depends on availability because with the corn that you have access to is only surplus. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. But, but yeah. the, the prospect of making more income and having the available land the meal plus and stuff like are many of these farmers like, okay, yeah, we'll make some more. You know, um, that is, that is kind of the hope is that, you know, it's hard to answer this question without going into the kind of the complexity that's behind the whole system kind of that's gotten us to where we are. But, um, you know, just stop me if I'm going too much off, off, uh, off path here, but you know, um, this has been something that's been consumed for millennia and, um, you know, it's been, it's been a tradition that is passed on from generation to generation, you know, as a subsistence crop, but obviously as we've talked about, like something that has a far more bitter significance than that, um, these folks are the kind of the custodians, if you will, of, of this genetic treasure trove we were talking about earlier. And it's a hundred percent really, I mean, you think about it, it's like this, living, breathing seed vault that exists in, um, you know, plain air, you know, across Mexico and other parts of uh, Mesoamerica that is, you know, that's a big job that they're doing. You know, they're, they're really preserving an entire culture that comes with this, this staple. 
And what happens over the years that through through globalization, I mean, this is amazing to me that, you know, even as early as like the early 20th century, the Mexican government tried really hard to, um, you know, to do away with corn as the main staple, you know, folks who were especially like Spanish sympathizers um, who saw, you know, wheat as like the, the most desirable, um, you know, that was real people's food, right? Like the rest was sort of inferior or substandard. Like there have been a lot of attempts to thwart this tradition and yet like, it's survived. The biggest risk that it's faced over the last, you know, several millennia, I think, has been through globalization and this this kind of commercialization of the seed industry, where you know, all of a sudden, um, man, it's so complex. Holy shit! Just like but trying you, to wrap my head around it. But you, but I'm smiling because again, the reason I want to interview is not only because I love corn, but because of the parallels. Because in a way, you're saying corn was considered maybe peasant or lower grade food because wheat's up here. Mezcal considered, considered peasant drink. Tequila up here, right? Yeah. And, and tequila is what suffers homogeneity genetically and exposes it to the massive risk of just being mm-hmm. burnt out by one little bug, you know? And it's all at the, the sake of the government making this call, right? Has yeah. it been difficult not dealing with them, but working with them? And were they ever suspicious of your intents? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. From the beginning, I think the pre so before Macienda, you know, entered globalization, a lot of folks didn't have the same kind of capacity or bandwidth to work, you know, these fields on their, you know, that they've they've maintained for a long time, um, because family members were going across the border to find work. You know, um, just the effects of of globalization, particularly NAFTA, you know, that, that rift that was created in '94. There just was a there was a really unequal, uneven playing field, and um, it wasn't enough. You know, like if there was any local market that existed before, um, it was sort of obliterated as the corn just completely was dumped by the United States onto Mexico in increasing quantities. So, it, the um, I mean, we could talk about that for days, but like, long story short, ninety four is this watershed moment with NAFTA. You have a lot of folks leaving, and so less hands are on the on the uh, you know the production side, the cultivation side. Uh, which means that less is being grown overall, which means that like, you know, this risk uh, that something, you know, one bad year, this is all rain fed agriculture, you know, there's no irrigation. One bad year, like you could wipe out an entire, you know, strained varietal of corn. Um, and, you know, that coupled with the fact that anything that in a productive year farmers had, they would, you know, try to sell. If you don't have a car to go to the market, you know, each week, to sell, you know, however much corn you have throughout the whole year. And somebody comes to you and says, Hey, I'll, I'll, I'll help you with that. I'll take that on consignment and I'll try to sell it for you. You do it. Like a lot of times what would happen is that they'd either, they didn't have any options. They'd either get paid very, very little for that, or, um, they would never get paid at all. Folks would just sort of make away and, and, um, you know, they would take that money and just, that was it. So yeah, a lot of natural, naturally, a lot of mistrust was developed and cultivated in these communities. And um, especially when we started talking about, you know, the style in which we wanted to do this, which was, you know, 100% cash on hand, there's no risk to the farmer, yeah. uh, raising the standards for what we were going to collect. So, you know, it was just, a, it was going to require some, some additional effort that wasn't something that was in a market norm there at the time. Um, and, you know, and be a constant presence year over year. You know, that was like a, a really hard thing, I think, for most fe- people to grasp not even just farmers, like the government, surely other companies think that still today, you know, it's a, it's, um, 
it's, it's, it's a leap of faith, I think, in a lot of people's imaginations. But one that, you know, we work within a network today of 2,000 farmers starting from like, you know, a handful in our first year. That's a lot of folks who, who have the ability to participate in something different that didn't exist before. Yeah. I mean, you've created an infrastructure like producers and agave as well. Do you, that's a lot of people, mind you, to keep in touch with, but are yeah. you able to, to be relatively in touch with the farmers or is it all kind of worked through the government organization? Yeah, no. So we don't work with the government um, actually at all. You know, I oh. think uh, for better or worse, I don't know. Um, just, I think it's intimidating and I don't quite know how to navigate that, but um, totally open to it, uh, but just hasn't really happened. Um, no. So our relationship is sort of follows two tracks. You know, we have individual relationships with farmers who we've worked with, who are kind of just more autonomous in general. They either live in areas like, you know, there's one of our, one of our partners that's um, about three hours outside of Mexico city. You, you know, it's relatively compared to Oaxaca and parts of rural Oaxaca, it's much more developed, right? It's still, oh. he's still living below the international poverty line, you know, is what's sort of whatever that means. And there's a lot of metrics for it, but like, you know, it's easier for him to produce at larger scale, you know, because it's not, he's working less by larger scale. I mean, like 10 hectares as opposed to, you know, one yeah. um, or something like that. And also just like not on the side of a cliff, you know, that's <laughs> overlooking a pretty steep drop, like, right, right. you know, still no tractor, but like, you know, he's got, he's got, it's, it's a little easier to manage. Um, but like, by no means is this looking like Iowa, you know, like, you know, the average family farms, like 350 acres, you know, all mechanized. Um, so we have relationships like that, where those are individuals who can kind of aggregate a little bit more of a varietal just because of what the landscape looks like and kind of what the social conditions look like on the ground. And then, you know, in really rural areas, especially where Spanish is not the, the primarily, you know, spoke, primary spoken language, mm-hmm. um, you know, we are working with groups on the ground who we've set up um, through over the, throughout the years both in the form of like co-ops um, there's lots of, you know, technical like organization names that I, um, I'm not great with names if you can't tell mm-hmm. um, like in terms of like how these things are structured, but you know, basically essentially they're all functioning as co-ops organizing each year. Um, you know, we'll make announcements locally in the community and certainly we've met a lot of these farmers. We don't personally know every single one of them. You know, I think like part of this is that we are sort of dropping in um, we have a constant presence. We maintain these collection aggregation facilities year over year, but like, you know, it's basically available to anybody who has and wants to do it. Um, it, there's no, there's no contract. We don't require people to do it. So that means that there's some transient nature to it too, within this kind of network that we work in and we yeah. don't always get to know. And I thought, well, so what I think is great about that, there's a real big Mezcal company that got acquired a couple of years ago and they, they make, many of the people in this particular state, which is Pueblo, sign a fixed cost agreement. So no matter, like you give me this much and I'll always, despite how the market fluctuates, but I'm only going to pay you this. I mean, so these co-ops then you, there are no, it's just how much the market necessitates that you would need to pay for the corn. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we don't, we, we, going into a year, I mean, so we just wrapped up doing this for this year. We'll assess what, what are the prices being paid at sort of at the retail level, like at the market scale um, or level? Uh, what are the prices that are being paid by increasingly now competing companies, which is really awesome. Um, you know, what is the kind of, what does this whole constellation look like? What are farmers asking for? Um, what can we afford? And we'll kind of go through all those points and year over year, like we've 
pretty much, I mean, every year there's been a bit of an increase depending on what the region is, but, you know, especially lately as more folks are getting, um, sort of clued into like why this is such an amazing, you know, staple to work with and, and why there's just so much potential for impact. Like it's awesome. It's changing and it's, it's definitely less, less, uh, you know, we're not driving that conversation anymore. It's a, it's a, it's a range of voices, which is awesome. But, um, I forgot. What, yeah, no, that's good. So do, you, do you ever, when you talk about reflection and stuff, I mean, the way I view your work with Masianda since 2014 is that you made corn important for Americans, many folks in culinary, but do you ever look at it and say, maybe I was the guy maybe I was the guy that actually changed the dynamic of how people think about corn. And cause you mentioned there's more competition now there's a Gropa, mm-hmm. which out of Houston. Mm-hmm. And do you, do you take pleasure in that? Or is it more just like, I've achieved these things. I'm just going to keep head down, keep, keep going. I mean, I think the reality like chronologically is that we were the first to do this in this organized way. I think there's a, like, um, you know, there's a methodology there and like, for better or worse, you know, we do consider ourselves as a leader just because of the scale at which we operate relative to some, some of the other folks in the space. Um, and also just like, you know, we, this isn't regulated and it's something we've always been very considerate of since the beginning. Like we want to do this right. Um, you got too many voices. It's hard to make a decision. So we have to really kind of just go with our gut of what we feel is right based on the education we continue to receive around the subject. And at the end of the day, yeah, we lead, you know, we lead to the best of our ability with that in mind. Um, but also, you know, not in a way to just sort of like, um, I think the biggest thing is, is, is leading because we know that a lot of eyes are on us and also, you know, just trying to try keep the bar really high, man, at the end of the day, like, you know, if we're not doing it, um, there's so much room, I think for, for things to go wrong. And at least for our part, you know, we learn and integrate anything we learn along the way that we, you know, a mistake, we, we certainly try to make sure that, um, those are being reflected in like a standard that moving forward so that, uh, we're holding ourselves and, and everyone else accountable. Yeah. And I think that's the commitment to quality is bar none. I mean, it's, it's incredible products. I was, you know, I was curious cause I've worked with customer service with y'all a couple of times. How big is the team over there in Los Angeles? Oh gosh, it was, Honestly, at the start of COVID, it was two. Um, we're, we're, yeah. Oh, yeah. wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. It's I mean, so much bigger. I know. There's like a little bit of, uh, it's not intentional smoke and mirrors, but I think people think we're like this monolithic corporation, you know, and like they asked, we just got like a request for a sponsorship for like a whole documentary series. And we're like, guys, like we are working through debt. We're working through all of these like small business things that, that uh, probably aren't evident, but you know, um, we're, we were two, or like I said, at the beginning of COVID, we're six now full-time in Los Angeles. And then, you know, we've got a team, um, uh, close to 30 that we kind of work with, uh, throughout the year in Mexico across every region, you know, that, that, um, I think sometimes we even are just like, man, there's such a big constellation of folks that we work with who make this work possible. It's, and it's, it's crazy the kind of what perception, because perception is reality as you learn. Yeah. Yeah. And so if you are a badass, you just got to own it, right? If you are the right. leader in the industry, you just kind of have to lead that. Right. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I think that speaking to details, because to make the perfect table tortilla, which I've learned from you and I've had them before, but I never really knew kind of the process. So I went backwards, you know, mm-hmm. 
what it what is it because it's so precise what does it take to make oh, the perfect puffing tortilla um a perfect puffing tortilla really kind of goes down to five things um you know, you want to make sure that you have proper elasticity. Um, so that's, you know, elasticity because this isn't gluten that we're working with. It's, uh, you know, corn doesn't have any of that. You're working with kind of what's the natural gums in corn. It's all the skins. So you want to make sure you have some presence of those. If you're working with masadina, there's a chance, like if you're working with our masadina, it's, uh, it's already kind of baked in there. But um, if you're making it from scratch, like you have, which is so cool, you know, you want to make sure you have a little bit of that to just make sure that, uh, you know, like chewing gum, like there's yeah. some elasticity to hold its structure as it expands. Um, you want to have a, ideally a very fine grind. So again, Masarina kind of makes this all really easy um, and has been done for you. But if you're doing it at home, you know, if you're using like a hand cranked mill, you want to pass that nixtamal through like three times to make sure yeah. it's getting fine enough. And even then it could still get finer, but it helps. Um, that fineness is what helps the, uh, you know, that, that masa to absorb moisture, which is the next factor that's super important to a puff. Um, moisture, you know, turns into steam once it, once heat touches it. So a puff is basically like, if you think about it, it's just, it's moisture or, you know, um, humidity that's sort of trapped in the center of a pressed uncooked tortilla. Mm -hmm. And once heat starts to hit it, it expands outward in the shape of a balloon. Um, ideally if you're getting like a really, really amazing puff. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'd say most people, I think myself included sometimes like can discount that how big of a play uh, that moisture has in it. And like, if you're using masadina or whatever, just making sure it's really properly, um, uh, you know, you're, you're integrating as much water as possible without making it like sticky. Yeah. Super, yeah. super critical. Um, compression. Sorry. This is the fourth one. This, no, is, like, I know. this, is, this, is, real, this is a real thing. Yeah. So compression, um, you know, if you think about like, uh, a ball of masa, you know, and you just put that on the stove, not much is going to happen. You know, um, you really want to make sure that you're, you're sort of like limiting, um, you're expanding your surface area to be able to cook kind of in a really efficient way. Um, and you know, if you're, if you're getting something that's too thick, it might be hard for it to puff. You might start to kind of get areas that are drying out, you know, before others or whatever. So like a nice press, honestly, just like press it nicely, you know, don't, don't skimp on the press. And um, y'all's press that I've got, Don Donia Rosa is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That thing fucking kills. I love, awesome. I I bring it out and like show people. I'm like, no, this is how we're gonna do it tonight. And it's, it's the shit, man. She it's does so an amazing good. job. And like, I'm always like, people, especially as we've grown in this holiday season, people are like, you know, it's a, it's a little rustic. You didn't say that. Like, one we did say, but like some people are like, you know, you didn't say that it was gonna be like a little. You know, it's like a kind of like got this like edge that's not super refined. And I was like you know, it's, it's Donia Rosa. She makes an amazing product. Like yeah. we, we tell people what this is, but it still does the best damn job of any, of any press I've ever used. So good. So good. Yeah. And temperature. That's the last one. So the just making sure you've got an, a hot enough surface to get a sear on both sides of that tortilla to lock in that moisture and then like let the kind of steam do the rest. So, cause we're going to talk about the new product that you get because I love this stuff, but I bought a temperature at gun. Mm, cool. So for oh, the man, you're really nerding out on this, I love it. Well, I wanted to know it. Like, <laughs> I love it. No, I, like, I, I feel if there's a connection. Yeah, dude. Yeah. And this, I mean, this you, you don't even want to start talking about like making spirits and stuff. It gets to this whole other level. But I found that over 500 degrees Fahrenheit, mm -hmm. I'm in a comfortable zone to get that thing cooked quickly and evenly. Do you have any suggestions there? 
I think you're right. I like, I, so we'll do like a lot of the videos we've had to make, unfortunately, since we don't have a real kitchen in our office is, um, is like on a little like electric griddle and like mm-hmm. that barely gets to 400 degrees and you can get like a little mild puff on it. Yeah. But yeah, I think like, I'd say that temperature range is great getting in. If you have a gas stove, especially at home, like medium, like a medium to medium high heat, probably medium is a good place to start. It gets pretty hot, like around 500. Yeah. And then as yeah. you get more comfortable with it, you can crank up the heat and start to just, you know, you don't stop. You're just banging them out really quickly. But you know, like making a mother sauce, like hollandaise mm-hmm. is you have to practice it. You know what I mean? But yeah. there is the way to make it. Yeah. And so what I really love, why the table tortilla specifically, it is like one of those sauces that will break. It's one of the sauces that will not thicken if you do not process it properly. And that's oh, yeah. why to me, it's such like this holy grail of, of corn, like a, of corn, because you have to do things in a particular way or it simply won't work. Yeah. It's, it's as simple as being like corn water and lime. And yet like, it's so complex, you know, like any, like anything, like some of these simplest, uh, culinary staples that we, you know, kind of take for granted are like, they're involved, man. You got to get to know them. Totally. Absolutely. All right, good. Well, I got to nerd out about the table tortilla. Yeah. One of the other movements, I think, again, is very parallel to what you're doing is the growth of different heirloom corn whiskeys. Mm, yeah. So, yeah. Abasolo, which uses cacao azinsle, mm-hmm. and Sierra Norte, which I think uses the Olotillo Morado. Is that right? I think that they use Bolita because they're getting mostly oh. from that Central Valley. Yeah, yeah. Oh, cool. How do you, I mean, how do you feel about having kind of a partnering crime, if you will, in the industry to help pr- raise corn as well? We have talked to, gosh, it's funny, when I wasn't sure what staple we would land on you know like masa was the main focus but like i was like should we be exploring beer and and spirits um you know i talked to to bertha casa de Aragones, and she was super into the idea of creating like a mexican bourbon mm-hmm. and you know i just didn't have the bandwidth to pull it off because the supply chain became so much more of a of a beast you know to, to kind of create and manage um, than i had expected but we've always encouraged people to do it and i've as i've been like kind of watching the the spirit scene go by i'm just like man everybody could be like we're talking about bloody butcher and like everyone's using the same thing across the board if they're like that's the one heirloom staple that everyone's using and i'm just like there's so much material here in mexico that you could do that has just such a beautiful story to it and like so much impact why aren't we doing this and so to see this happening now is super cool um we've worked with uh we worked a little bit with with high wire distillery on just getting some test batches like okay. back in 2014 and I loved what it did, you know, just, just the nuance of, gosh, I'm no expert in spirits, but like, I just thought it was really mind blowing. Um, just the differences in flavor from even batch to batch, but also just like based on this one input, like it makes sense, right? Yeah. Like, of course it would totally drastically change that. There's a, a distillery up here in North Texas and Denison called Iron Root that it's in Denison and Denison's a sister, sister city to Cognac. And so there's because we sent over the vines to save them during Veloxra. And so mm-hmm. it's been like this kind of interesting combination. But anyway, they use a purple corn that I was chatting with the guys the other night. I didn't, they, they didn't know which one it was, but it was definitely from Oaxaca. And mm. it gives you a different, to your point, gives you such a, a different nuance. It's nuance is what it is. Yeah, it you know, really is. Okay. I mean, we work with, and also the, the, obviously the distiller makes such a difference in that too. We work with Workhorse Rye and to see them work with some of the varieties that we worked with with back when we had done some work on um, 
you know, with Highwire, it's like, there's so much range. There's such an enormous amount of range. It's incredible. So before we talk about, because I got a couple questions left for you, but what do you have a favorite, not a favorite, but like if you're thinking you want something light with, how about this, a real heavy, rich protein, maybe picadillo or something, what mm-hmm. corn do you think would make a good tortilla for that? I mean, bolita to me is the first, it's like the first love. And it's also the, it's, it's the hardiest of anything we work with. There's there like on paper, there are varieties that we work with that are denser, like, you know, the, the Duxpeño, which is mm. um, actually like what most of the commodity corns that we see in the world, like it's based on Duxpeño. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd say bolita for me is like my favorite, you know, you're talking about something that sees, you know, works with all of the moles of Oaxaca. It's like, that's the, that's the primary corn that I think really, you know, flayudas are made of bolita. They, they have a lot of structural integrity and really holds up to a lot of sauces and also just can like itself, like it can create a large format tortilla that is like, you know, bulletproof. Yeah. Um, I'd say that to me is, uh, is my go-to, but there are of course many others. I mean, Tuxpeño being one. Tuxpeño um, is, is a real interesting one. I had a friend that made some, I sent him some matzo, harina and he made some tamales with it and it looked really, really good. But one that I think is so delicate and beautiful that you guys have, is it Zocuyul? Zocuyul, yeah. Zocuyul, yeah, from the Rosado from Tlaxcala, right? Yeah, yeah, that's like, um, that's a part of um, the, uh, I guess like the, the sort of the conical varieties that have a little bit larger of a, of a kernel and lots of soft starch inside of them. Like you don't see those in commercial agriculture here in the States at all, because they're so soft when they're going through a grain cleaner, they'll just break, you know, they're they're really, really fragile. And so that's just one, it's stunning. And two, it's so beautifully delicious. Like, yeah, it's it's a, it's, it's a, it's one of my favorites. That's probably the one where you're like, oh, you don't think corn can taste different? Well, have a little bit of bite of this and it's it's turned heads like my my friend she's one of the editors in a vibe and i sent him some stuff for and i and I, she's like i'm gonna make this kind of protein and i was like try the rosado i think that's gonna be perfect and she mm. was, she loved the taste of it. it it's so beautiful but one of the things i think that you've been really good with too is you talk about the market and you kind of understand the market that you're creating in one but also is grow, growing kind of peripherally in other things like whiskey but these products are great, right? So this, this tortilla press is incredible. I haven't bought the blue masa yet, which, which I will at some point. We're super stoked about that one. Dude, yeah. I'm, it, it looks beautiful. And really, it's, it, to me, it was the benchmark for which if I could make masa, blue masa that was fine and could puff, then like maybe I can meet that standard, you know? But the Kamal, you know, number five on your list of things, that these variables for making a perfect tortilla... How did this kind of come about? Did you see it as a market opportunity? You know, for us, like, I think we went in a lot of different directions for a long time, even up until, you know, um, we started in 2014, 2013, thinking about all this stuff. Like, like I said, we've tried spirits, we've tried everything and landed on Masa just being this really underdeveloped, uh, uh, like really fun thing to tackle in the kitchen. And, and, with each layer of the onion we pulled back, like, you know, the press to me, it was like, I wasn't really satisfied with what I was finding on Amazon or, you know, any of these other places. Every time I would go to Oaxaca, we'd bring something back. Um, and that's how the, you know, the Doña Rosa experience happened. Like it was just like, we were bringing it back for Cosme and, you know, they wanted them and they fell in love with it and we, we couldn't stop using it. And then we just decided to share it with more people. Wow. I think for us, the responsibility is like, you know, 
people can't, I want this to be a national, like a, not even national, like a global phenomenon and anything we can do to push that forward and get people thinking about this the same way they do with sourdough mm-hmm. and not just thinking about it, but like really respecting it and respecting the people behind it is, is my goal. It's like what makes me, you know, keeps me up at night. It's what I want. And, um, you can't do that if you don't have three things, you know, you need, you need the actual resources. So like the text, the information, the, the know-how, how to do it which there was nothing, uh, you know, it's, this is a largely like folkloric tradition that's been passed down much like spirits. Um, and, uh, you need, um, not just the resources, you need the actual, you know, tools and the hardware to get that done. And yeah, you know, you have these gomales that are in Mexico, they're great. Um, you know, they don't always pass muster for what we need to have here in the U S just based on like, you know, just different standards across the border. And, um, you know, little imperfections as we're learning with the, you know, the Neurosas press, like those are also going to happen in other pieces of, yeah. uh, of hardware we work with. So we wanted to make sure that, um, you know, it was a little bit more sort of buttoned up for, for kind of a commercial experience and made in, we love what they're doing, their local, their, their neighbors in the backyard. And, um, you know, for us, they were doing such a great job on just translating kind of these tradition, um, you know, based, uh, pastimes and like just making them into beautiful pieces of hardware. And they were stoked about the idea of, of doing a comal. They'd never done anything like it before. And um, they were, they jumped on it the second we suggested it. So we collaborated with them and I, you know, it's, it's definitely a departure from what I was used to using because I, I was used to use like a nonstick pan, but mm-hmm. it's so cool having that. It literally does not come off of my stovetop. My wife doesn't love that, but it's. <laughs> but that's, you know, to create tools that you cannot be without that's all you really want, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and I think that you've done such a great job of doing that with the press and the masa, which is where I started with this whole kind of weird, stupid curiosity about it. No, nothing yeah. stupid, man. Well, no, I know. But it, like financially, it could, <laughs> it could yeah. appear. I'm, yeah. I'm going to write it off now once I get, the, you know, I get the LLC and stuff. So, But <laughs> it's just been so, so cool getting to hear about your story and just how deep you went into corn and this will be, it's going to continue to grow. And I'm going to do what, what I have felt, again, like the passion I've gotten from you. I'm going to try to do that too. There's plenty of people that are really tired of hearing me talk about masa. <laughs> you know? <laughs> but, you got to start making and selling it. And just that's really that's it. it. That's, you know, that's the next step. And I, I run a real big mezcal group in Texas and like, the hand in hand. So I was like, you're getting masa when you come to pick up these samples. You know what I mean? Just, uh, like, that's so cool. Just get people to do it. But so the, my last question, well, I got two questions left and that's it, but taking it to mezcal, let's say it's whatever mezcal you, you have and you're sipping it in Oaxaca and you could have a drink with anybody living or deceased, who might you like just to pony up at the bar and have a conversation with? I'm kind of feeling myself a little bit. I just got to do that recently with somebody, um, Betty Fussell. She wrote the story of corn, which is like a super, you know, as you can imagine, it's a pretty esoteric book about corn. (laughs) And as I was reading it, I was just blown away by the amount of research and like dedication to a subject. Like I thought I cared. She is like on a totally different level, not just of like research, but, um, storytelling and, I got to meet her. She's, um, she's, she's older now. She, I think she's in her early nineties living in a, in a, in a home in um, Santa Barbara. And I got to talk to her a little bit, but I was just like, I was wanting to spend some more time with her and just learn from her and that process. And I'd say her, um, 
she's got me, she's got me kind of wrapped around her finger. I want to know everything I can, you know, yeah. and, and, uh, do right by it. Um, she's great. Obviously any hand that like figured out what the fuck to do with corn and like, <laughs> you know, how it happened. Like, that's just like, but I kind of like that there's mystery there and that I'll never know, you know, yeah. like a part of me just kind of like, I love that we're going to always be trying to find out. So I'd say, you know, alive, probably some more, more conversations just cause I'm writing this book right now, uh, talking to Betty Fussell and, and dead. Um, but very much still with us. Like what happened that day? You know, like what, mm-hmm. what happened? How do we, how do we start to, to do this? And like, just let's like lay it, lay it straight for us. Like tell mm-hmm. us, tell us exactly what went down that day or mm-hmm. over that lifetime to, to kind of inform where we are today with corn and nixtamalization and masa. Yeah, that's incredible. Well, so then the last question was, was going to be what's next, but tell me a little bit about the book. Um, yeah, the book's been a long time coming. I mean, I think, you know, I, this is a very folkloric tradition and it's one that is, um, also has been sort of obscure, like despite the fact that we consume so much of this stuff, like anybody, like even people who are like, Oh, I don't like Mexicans. You know, it's like one, it's not just Mexican Two, You do because you eat this like in almost more ways than you think like Fritos, man, for God's sake. It's like, um, I, I wanted to write a book that I think just like illuminated how um, important masa is in our lives and also just start to kind of connect some of these dots. Uh, by no means is it meant to be like a definitive book. It's a, I mean, it's a cookbook, but it has a lot of history and goes into sort of depth about, um, you know, just origin and technique and, and process. Um, so it's sort of like the, the first dedicated book um, to masa. And, wow. you know, like outside of a cookbook for a restaurant where it's like a couple pages on how to make it, it's like, it is the tartine, you know, country loaf recipe, but like for making a table tortilla masa at home and then a whole bunch of history and kind of fun stuff to dive into in between. That's incredible. Any expected release date? Yeah, we just, uh, I'm editing the manuscript today um, and uh, there'll probably be a couple more rounds. It should be out early, early 2022. So nice. we've got a, about a year between us uh, until that comes out. That's incredible. I mean, it shows dedication and just mental acuity and, and devotion, you know, it's, it's, it's incredible how you've done that for corn and it's, it's just the, the start, you know, yeah. it, it really is. So we're going to keep fighting the good corn fight, Jorge. And I hope that <laughs> when I can get to LA or if you can get to Austin, we'll have uh, enough Lito proper. I'll be there. You can also, Sotol. I'm, I'm jealous of, I want the handmade stuff. So I'll be looking forward to that too, Mike. Uh, my pleasure. A mallet works really well, as I found out. <laughs> Eight pound, that and a tarp, it works really, really well. So, you tell my wife that. Yeah. <laughs> it's been a pleasure chatting with you, mate. And hopefully we'll get to do this thing in person soon. Thanks so much for taking the time out. I'll talk to you. Likewise. Thank you. Cheers. So there we have it. Jorge Gaviria from Masienda, really steeped in food culture it kind of drove him to start his own thing to connect farmers and connect consumers and cooks and everything to better products as well i can absolutely attest to the brilliance the variety the flavor the complexity of all the different heirloom corn varieties that i've tried from Masienda. probably eight strong now at least eight different kinds of corn and it's driven me to find my own place with corn and own passion for it too you know to be ignited to be inspired by each other, by certain people in certain trades, and to connect with them. This is something for me that's been so immensely important, especially when so many things seem gray and they seem overwhelming and they seem 
in complete disarray. They do not have to be when it comes to your passions. And Jorge made this very clear. He had a staff of two. Now he has a staff of six. He's going to keep writing. He's going to keep exploring and bringing all of us closer to the people that make these amazing things. Bring us back to nature as a result. So thanks everybody for listening to Show to V with Mike G. No matter how many times you do not get tired of watching Kitchen Nightmares streaming live on IMDb TV. Yeah, that's pretty specific. Or if you're thinking, you know what, man, Chipotle's got cauliflower rice now. Things might be different. Please keep thinking.